here. And uh, my name is Bob, and I'm the guest preacher this morning. Uh, so, <laughs> hey, if you um, if you did not get um, some communion elements as you came in this morning, you might want to grab those really quick. We've got them on a table right there in the back. Ken's holding it up, and you'll want those. It'll just make things a little more seamless uh, as we go through the service. We'll be taking communion together um, at the end of the service. So we are um, making our way through a series called We Believe. We are going through um, the Apostles' Creed. And we kind of told you the first week that we dived into this. this is a little different from us as a church. And you know, people are like, why would we do this? And why would we go through a creed? And, and there's actually several good reasons. Um, the creed that we're going through, the Apostles' Creed, is the oldest of the written creeds that we have in the church. It's also the briefest of the creeds. It takes about a million words of the Bible and just kind of boils them down to about 111. It doesn't cover everything in terms of theology, but it covers a lot of very important, very basic things. Um, it is recognized, in fact, it's the only creed that's recognized by every Christian tradition. And so it's something a lot of us have in common. Many of you have shared with me that you grew up in a church where you recited the creed. Uh, the words might have been a little bit different, uh, but pretty much the same. And so uh, this is something that Christians all over the world have in common, this, this creed. And we've, so we've kind of been reading through this together. We're going to read through it together right now. And for some of you, I know you've got it memorized, so that's great. For some of you, you're brand new and you don't have it memorized. You have it in the notes. You can read it from there. I'm going to have it up on here as well with a little bit of a kind of a lead in. And then some of you, you want me to know that you memorized it. So just like look straight at me, don't look at the screen and I'll know. You'll get gold stars for sure for that. So, uh, so let's do this. Let's read this together. We're not going to do the whole thing this morning, just kind of up to where we're teaching. Here we go. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints. And we're going to stop right there because that's where we're going to pick it up today. Of all the messages, I think, that people have been looking forward to, this is the one that a lot of people have been like, okay, if I have one problem with the creed, it's right here. It's right here because Pastor Bob, it sounds like you're going to make us all Catholic. So let's pray and we'll talk about that, all right? Father God, we thank you so much for uh, this week to walk with you and know you, um, to enjoy your blessings, to be challenged, to grow in our faith. And I pray for us now as we look at the Apostles' Creed, as we talk about your church, as we look at Scripture. Father, that you will teach us, that you will guide us in this service, just like you did in the last one. I pray that we will hear from you today. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, 
Amen. Amen. So here's where we're going to be today. The Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints. Now up to this point, you may have noticed that the creed has really centered around uh, the triune God. In fact, it's divided into three stanzas, if you will. Uh, We began by talking about God the Father Almighty, and then we spent a lot of time talking about Jesus the Son, and then last week we introduced the topic of the Holy Spirit. And now the creed is moving in uh, from kind of the triune God to the people of God, which we're going to refer to as the church, as the creed does. Now, it starts with the Trinity for a a whole lot of reasons, but I think one of the things that we need to keep in the back of our mind as we begin to think about the people of God is the importance of the Trinity. And it's been said that one of the things that the Trinity shows us is that God is relational in essence. Now, to say that God is relational in essence is different than saying God is relational. Right? We're not just saying, well, God knows how to carry on a conversation and he can be relational. When we say that God is relational in essence, what we mean is it's baked into the very fiber of his being. That being relational isn't something God does as much as it is something that God is. And this is where it gets difficult for us, right? We, we've been talking about the Trinity as we go through the series. We talk about it a lot as we go through different passages. But the Trinity is a difficult thing for us to get our heads around. Well, that's a weird way of putting it. Like, we can't get our heads around it. There's some stuff that we can wrestle with. But when we, when we think about the idea of God the Father and God the Son and God the Spirit, Um, being in a relationship with one another, being one and yet being three persons in one. And and there are a lot of times when we think about that and how does that work and how can God be one and be three? And, you know, how did it work like when Jesus uh, was on this earth? And just a lot of really good questions as we think about that. And there's a certain sense in which we just throw out the term Trinity and, you know, we say things like God is one and God is three, right? And we all like, oh yeah, I, I get that. And then there's a mystery about it to us. Um, but we do know that each member of the Trinity lives in unity and, and in perfect love with one another. We know that Jesus that talks about that. And then we've talked about the fact that uh, we have been created in the image of God. We are the Imago Dei and that we reflect God in, in many parts of us, many aspects. And just as God is relational in essence, again, I think it's important for us to understand Scripture, I don't think, is primarily calling us to do relationships as much as it is reminding us that we reflect this, this aspect of God, that we are relational in essence. It's, it's such an uh, important part of who we are that uh, we are wired for it, We absolutely require it, and we must pursue it. Now, Jesus has asked a crucial question. We, this passage comes up all the time. Um, Basically, we put it this way, like Jesus has asked, if you took the whole Old Testament and you just kind of boil it all down, and what's it about? Because there's just so much stuff in there. How would you put it? What's the main thing? In Mark chapter 12, verse 28, it says, and one of the scribes came up and heard uh, people disputing with one another and seeing that Jesus had answered them well. They had a question and answer time going on. And, and uh, this guy can see Jesus. He, he knows what he's talking about. And so he asked him a question. My guess is it's a question that he'd been wrestling with a lot. And he said, which commandment is the most important of all? And Jesus answered him. The most important is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Now, we read that part and oftentimes we just get right on to the next part, right? And so love God and love one another. And I I get why we do that, but I I really got stuck here this week and we're not going to hang out here. But don't miss this first part where he says, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. This is interesting, isn't it? Before he moves on and says about loving one another, he's saying, remember God. 
Remember God. What do we know about God? We know that God is three and God is one and God is, is, is triune in essence. He's relational in essence. Remember that. Don't forget that because the next part becomes very important. It, it kind of moves it from being here's what you do to here's what you are as people have been created in the image of God. Does that make sense? Here's what you are, all right? The Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord. Here's what you do. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. It's what you do. It's because who you are as a believer. And the second is this. And some translations will say the second is like the first or the idea is you can't separate them. They can't be broken. They go together. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There's no other commandment greater than these. So what's he saying? Just to kind of summarize it up real quickly, he's saying this, that we are to know God as one God. That's the, that's the starting point. That we are to know God and to know him as, as one God. Remember, this is Jesus, uh, God in the flesh, saying this. There's just a whole lot of really cool stuff going on here. So remember that, that you know God as one God and you live in a right relationship with God. How do you live in a right relationship with God? You love God. Like that's the way that we would describe it. And there's a ton of stuff that goes with love as you read through the Bible, right? And that you love one another. In other words, these two things go together. Now, one of the challenges is that we live in a culture that encourages relationships, but pretty much relationships are like a mile wide and an inch deep. For all that our culture says about authenticity and transparency, our culture does a lot to get in the way of that, to keep us from having those kind of relationships. I heard a guy say years ago, and it's always stuck with me, in America, we are what we might call not a front porch culture, but a backyard culture, right? And those are two different things. We are not, as a culture, basically people who, you know, like we put a deck on the front yard, we put our hot tub out there, you know, we put some chairs, and in the evening we sit out there, and the neighbors walk by, and woohoo, we say hi, and you know, we just kind of, no, we go in the backyard where we've got a fence and we can retreat. Now, you know, we, we have like, I love the fact in my neighborhood, everyone has an automatic garage door opener, and this is what everyone does. They come home from work, they don't get out of the car, the garage door opens up, they drive in, and the garage door closes. Heaven forbid that they actually go outside and somebody contact them, you know, start to talk with them. I like to work in my yard when the weather's decent. And um, I find one of the dangers of working in my front yard is I have no control over what happens. So almost without fail, every time I'm working in the yard, whether I'm, I'm, I'm watering or whether I'm mowing lawn or whatever, I always have a neighbor or two or three or four who walk by. And when they walk by, they'll, maybe they're walking their dog and they'll just stop and start up a conversation. And this is always a challenge for me because I'm kind of a man. I got my to-do list. I got oh, to get the lawn done. It's right. So I'm thinking about that. And then they'll be like, hey, you know, what do you think about the weather? Well, I don't know. What can you think about the weather? It's hot. You know what I mean? Like, what can you talk about? But they'll want to talk and have a conversation. And then sometimes people, this happens a lot. People drive by and just pull over on the curb and roll down the window. And they'll be like, hey, what's going on? So this is this part's always a challenge for me because I don't always remember names and faces really well. And so a lot of times I'm having conversations with people and I'm like, do I know them? Do I not know them? How do I know them? And so, you know, you just kind of talk, carrying on a conversation. And then eventually when they're good and done with the conversation, when they're bored with me, they'll leave, you know. Then I got to finish yard work. And then sometimes I have people who do this. They'll be driving by and they'll slow down and they'll pull in my driveway and I'll say, hey, you know, how are you doing? Well, the conversation, I'll say, what are you doing in my neighborhood? You know, you don't usually come through here. And they'll say, I've had people say, well, I, I thought you might be out in the front yard. 
And so I just wanted to come by and say hi to you. I'm like, that's awesome. Now here's, and sometimes my wife is inside like snickering. She's like laughing about this, right? Because she knows I got a list and I got a timeline and alarms are about to go off. But I'll tell you that it's good for me. It's good for me because it reminds me that relationships aren't all about me and what's comfortable for me and when I want to do it. Because I am a lot like many of us in our culture, we're backyard people right? We have a backyard, we have a fence, we have gates with locks on them, we have security systems and guard dogs, and that's where in, uh, the only people that can come in our backyard are the people we invite back there. It's our, it's our comfort zone. In the U.S., we are not really into relationships like we would like to think that we are. I came across a study this last week, a study done of countries all over the world. I know that you probably really can't see this, um, but it's got, you know, China, Mexico, South Korea, all these countries. It goes way down the list. And it talks about how people in these different countries spend their time on a daily basis. How much time we spend doing paid work, uh, sleeping, housework, other unpaid things. And then way over on this side, down here, we got this little slice, seeing friends. And it's defined as actually being with friends friends, not family, but with friends, that you're with them face to face. In the U.S., we are tied for second to last with Portugal and Mexico. The only ones that spend less time, and it's just by a couple minutes, are people in South Korea. This says we spend 44 minutes a day with friends face to face. Now, I've been sharing this statistic with people this week, and I get two kinds of looks. Some people look at me like, where in the world do people find 44 minutes every day to, to be with you, right? I could just see on your, on your faces, you're like, oh, I'm such an underachiever. And others of you are like, 44 minutes? I get in 44 minutes before I have breakfast. You know, like, what's wrong with people? But again, just, just think about the point is this, as a culture, as much as we'd like to think that we're really into meaningful relationships, we, by and large, are not. As one person put it, they said, I have a thousand Facebook friends and none of them really know me. They only know what I want them to know. But that is not God's intention for us. God's intention is that we would walk deeply and intimately with one another. And Jesus says it's because we are relational in essence. It's part of how we reflect our creator that we love him and that we love each other. It's the main thing. And so in the creed, we come to um, these two phrases, which we're going to cover together because they are basically one phrase in the creed. So let's start with Holy Catholic Church, because I know that's where you want to start. And I, I have literally had um, people, um, I would say probably every week during this series, who have come up to me afterwards and said, you know, Pastor, I really am liking this, and I'm liking the whole thing. I'm not going to be with you on the Holy Catholic Church, just so you know right now, I'm not becoming Catholic. We're not going to go there, all right? So we're going to, let's talk about that. Let's start with the word holy first. When it talks about the Holy Church, what does that mean? Well, the word holy basically means something that is set apart, something that is, the idea is is a, a called out people in the Greek. It's people who have been kind of pulled out of the world, out of the commonness of the world, and called into something else. We put it this way. We have been called by God for God. We've been pulled out of the world. And it, so it has this idea of being set apart, of being consecrated. It also has the idea morally that we've been made right with God because of Jesus and his life and the work that he has done for us. So we might just say this. When we talk about a holy church, we're saying the church is made up of holy people who have been set aside from the world for God's purposes. Now that has a lot of implications for how we do church. We don't 
chase culture, right? We, we follow God, but we are a, a, a church of people who are holy. We'll talk more about that in a minute. And then it talks about the word Catholic, the Catholic church. So let's just say this right off the top. It's, it's a little C and it's a little C for a reason. We're not talking about the Roman Catholic Church, right? And I've got that in your notes. Catholic, not Roman Catholic. In fact, the Roman Catholic Church didn't even exist when the creed was being written. So it couldn't possibly be referring to that. But let's talk about this. Catholicos is the Greek word that we get this from. It means according to the whole or universal. And we even use the word invisible to describe this. We'll, we'll talk about what we mean by that. But the point of the creed is this, that the church is universal. Um, that is, it includes all Christians everywhere throughout all time. And the point here is that there is only one church and it has just one Lord. Of course, one of the questions that we start to ask is what about, what about different denominations, right? But the thousands of Christian denominations all over the world. One writer put it this way, Christians, in fact, biblically are at liberty to disagree over certain matters that are not essential to the gospel. And there's no reason why churches can't congregate together, fellowship together, based on some of those things. If they, if they keep the fact that we are one church in mind. So let me just give you a couple examples. Let's think of baptism for a minute, okay? Baptism is a big one that has divided a lot of churches over the years. So uh, in our church, we practice believer's baptism. That is when somebody has placed their faith in Christ, is trusted in Christ, um, and we, we baptize those people. Now, I have a lot of friends uh, in churches and pastor churches and they practice uh, infant baptism. And so, you know, we'll get together and we'll talk about it and we'll debate about it and we'll disagree about it. Um, but in the end, we realize that we are brothers in Christ and we belong to the same church. That our view of baptism does not make us not part of the Catholic Church. Now, we may still congregate according to people who uh, agree with us and that's okay as long as we remember that we still belong to the same church. Another one that separates churches sometimes into different groups is church polity. That is how a church, you know, organizes itself. Elders or deacons or admin board or however they do that. Eschatology is another one. Uh, eternal security. I have friends who belong to churches that, and pastor churches and they don't believe in eternal security. And we get together sometimes and hang out. And, you know, I always like to joke with them. I'm like, I know you think, think you can lose your salvation and you know, that's, that's okay. I, you're wrong. Um, and it's probably good for you that you're wrong right? Get it? But, but that's okay. You could be wrong. I still love you and we're still part of the, the ch church universal and you'll get your act together one day. Uh, we may dis disagree on the gifts of the spirit or, or politics or alcohol. Another writer put it this way, Christian liberty means that we are free to establish congregations and denominations by convictions and affinities and affiliation. And in fact, over the years, history shows that there are times when, when denominations are very helpful uh, because one denomination can rise up and challenge another one that's going astray. It's kind of an iron sharpens iron thing. But spiritually, when we talk about the Holy Catholic Church, what we are saying is this. Regardless of what geographical you know, location you go to for church, if you are a believer, we all belong to the same one church. We belong to a group of believers that transcends time. Right? It includes uh, if your grandparents are Christians, they're in it. If your great-grandparents were, uh, were Christians, they're in it. Uh, people that you have never met right, are, are in it. Uh, over every geographic location, every ethnicity, language, economics, na nationality, education level, musical tastes, uh, politics, 
yeah, uh, differing opinions on things like worship music and, and uh, you know, masks and cats and the, people with whom we have almost nothing else in common except that we have the same Lord, same faith. We belong to the same church. Jesus asked his disciples one time, who do people say that I am? We looked at this a couple months ago. You know, they were like, the disciples were like, some think you're John the Baptist, come back from the dead, and some people think you're Elijah or Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And in Matthew chapter 16, Jesus said to them, but, but what about you? Right? Who do you say that I am? And Peter replied, well, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him and said, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, that is Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. It wasn't that you were really smart or that you figured it out or that your pastor explained it to you, but it was God in heaven who revealed this to you. And I tell you that you are Peter. And on this rock, on this confession, on this confession of truth and who Jesus is, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. He said, I will build my church, my ecclesia, my called out, literally called out people. I will gather them together and I will make my church. The church is made up of people who trust in Christ and confess him as Lord. And, and when this is true of you, when you believe in Christ and you confess him as Lord, you are in. You are automatically in the Holy Catholic Church. There's no one-on-one class. There's no church vote. You are, you are in. And by the way, you're never getting out, okay? And, and the implication, though, is this, that the gospel is not primarily about God saving individuals, but God saving a community for himself. And that's kind of lost on us sometimes, isn't it? Sometimes we start to think, well, Christianity is just all about me, right? That God sought me, and that God loves me, and that God saved me, and all that's true. But God did not just save us so that we, he could have, you know, billions of individual relationships. He saved us to be part of a family. And he calls that the church. Uh, over the years, I've had many opportunities to travel to Nicaragua and uh, to go there and to be with uh, other believers. And if you have never had a chance to go to uh, another country where they speak another language and go to a church service, I highly recommend it. I wouldn't go to Nicaragua right now, but maybe hopefully in a year or so you could go there. Um, but I remember uh, the first time that I went there, there was something about going to a church service, actually a church service where I was going to be speaking, but I didn't speak the language well. And I remember like sitting in um, the congregation as they were worshiping. It was very different. Like some of you would not like it. Just take my word for it. So th this is how they do a sound check. They go in and sometimes they'll have a keyboard player and a drummer and a guitarist and they'll just turn everything up as high as it goes until it distorts and it hurts, right? And that's the love. And I remember like being in there, it's just loud. It's actually brilliant because what happens is the congregation, they basically have to scream in order to get over the instruments. And it's loud and it's awesome and they're excited and they're worshiping and their hands are in the air. And I remember like listening, I'd pick I could pick out a, you know, every couple of words that they were singing and they'd pray together and I'd watch them praying and fellowshipping and listening to the word, their zeal for the Lord, the way that the Holy Spirit was working in their lives. And, and every time I go and I sit in those services, I think to myself, you know what? Gateway isn't the only church in the world. Gateway isn't the only church where God is saving and God is working. There are churches all over the world where God is working in amazing ways. And it, that's part of the church Catholic. We're, we're, we're part of that. And it reminds me that we are part of this community that, that extends all over the world, all throughout time. In Revelation chapter 7, we get a picture of this. 
It says, And after this John writes, I looked and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and people and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. Can you picture it? And they were crying out with a loud voice. They were saying, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. This is the Holy Catholic Church. And this view of the church should keep us from becoming sinfully proud as a church, as if thinking that we're somehow better than other biblically preaching, gospel-honoring churches. There are so many churches in our area that honor God, worship God, preach the gospel like we do. And we're a family. We're not in competition. We're in this together. We are part of the Holy Catholic Church. But he goes on, the, the, the creed goes on with another statement. It follows up with the statement, the communion of saints. Now, when we talk about the Holy Catholic Church, we're talking about what we might call, sometimes theologians call, the invisible universal church. But now this phrase is talking about, we would say, the local visible church. Groups of believers who gather together in a physical place to live out their membership in the Holy Catholic Church. So, and we'd be like, we all belong in the Holy Catholic Church, but how do we, where do we live it out? Well, we live it out together, geographically, in an area where we gather together in person to worship and, and to proclaim the gospel and to teach the word. We pray together, we fellowship together, we encourage one another. D.A. Carson puts it this way, local churches should view themselves as local branches of the one universal church. It's where we live all this stuff out. Now again, let me just break this down. It talks about the communion of saints. So let's talk about saints first. because We've already talked about that once. Again, a saint is someone who is holy or someone who is set apart. So when we talk about the holy Catholic church, holy meaning as a group we're holy, but here it's talking about as individuals. We are individually kind of taken from God and he's called us out of the world into a relationship with him and into the church. And what it says here is that we are we are holy, that is, we are saints. Now, in the Roman Catholic Church, you may be familiar with the concept of a saint. A saint is someone who um, basically has worked three or more miracles during their lifetime that can be authenticated. To be a saint in the, in the Roman Catholic Church, you have to work at least three miracles, and then you have to die. And then after you're dead, someone has to care about it. And then they have to have kind of some lawyers that come within the church, and they prove that you work these, they get testimonies. And then if all that's true, then you become a saint. Okay, in our church, it's a lot easier. How many of you are believers? Raise your hand. Believers, you're saints, all right? There you go. So that's, that's what it takes. You, you believe in Jesus Christ, and it has a, a couple of ideas that you've been set apart, which you have. It's important to remember. And you have been made um, clean in God's sight. Again, not because of anything you've done, but because of Christ, because of the one who has called us. So we are saints. And then it uses this word, communion, all right? So this is not communion like we're going to take in a minute. Um, communion, the word communion in the creed is basically an older English word that means fellowship. And in the original, it used the word koinonia, which you may be familiar with. Koinonia, we get the word fellowship, but really koinonia means sharing, uh, supporting, um, and again, the idea of fellowship. But it's really that big idea of sharing. Now again, our world has set up a lot of barriers to true, authentic community or to fellowship or to koinonia. But again, because we've been created in the image of God, there's a part of us that thirsts for it, that, that hungers for it. And when we live in isolation, there's a part of us that just doesn't 
like that, that just craves something more. I read an article this week, it said this, this is why coffee shops have become such a big deal in the last 20 years. Starbucks is intentionally trying to be what sociologists call your third place. So you have home and you have work or school, but you need a third place to go and feel connected. And this is something that Starbucks has has tapped into. It's why they don't just have a drive-through. It's why they have a place where you can go and just hang out, if you're me, for hours and hours and hours with people drinking coffee and connecting with people. It's fellowship. But we would say this, the biblical concept of fellowship isn't just merely going, but, but belonging. So for instance, this thing that we're doing right now may or may not be fellowship. It really depends on how you go about it. And sometimes people will tell me, you know, I, I don't go to church. I even have believers sometimes will say, well, I don't really go to church because church is full of hypocrites and, you know, and, and imperfect people. And my response is, that's right, amen, yeah. And they'll be like, you know, people, you're just bumping up against each other and they say dumb things and they do dumb things and they won't stay in their boundaries, you know, and they're just, they're, they, they bother me and, um, you know, they, they cross lines. And then, you know, people say they're hypocrites and they're proud, church is full of proud people and they're there's envy in the church and there's a lot of selfishness in the church and it's just really messy. And I always say the same thing. I say, you know what? Yeah, it is. It's, it, being in a church is hard work. It's hard work because it's supposed to be hard work. If it's hard, then you'll know you're doing it right. All right? That's it. Because here's the easy way to do church. Come in late after church has started and grab a bolt and sit down and say, say hi to anyone. Leave while I'm doing the closing prayer. Just get out of here and don't come to anything else and that's easy. Right? It's supposed to be hard. Right? Because here's one of the things we know. We know that God tends to grow us through hard stuff, not easy stuff. Have you noticed that? It tends to be the hard stuff. Like It's the thing that we really hate about ourselves, but we know it's true. God wants you to grow. And a big part of how God grows you is just by being around imperfect people. You know, people like you. Um, it grows our patience. Right? You, don't, you don't grow in patience when you're around perfect people, do you? No, because you don't need to. Where do you grow in patience? Around all those imperfect Christians, right? It's where you grow in your wisdom and in your perspective on life. It's being around other people that challenges our sinful habits and our, and our sinful thoughts. It teaches us how to forgive, right? Like it's, if you're not around people who ever sin against you and do stupid things, it's hard to learn how to forgive, right? So when someone sins against you, you can be like, thank you. You're teaching me to be like Jesus, you know? How to forgive you. It helps us grow in our humility and in our, our service. It makes us more like Christ. You have all these passages in the New Testament. Ephesians is a letter that's written to a group, to, to a church. It's written to a group of people who gather together locally for church. It's communion of saints. And notice what Paul says. He says, I'm urging you. I'm, he, he says, I'm begging you to do something here. What? To walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. Right? How do you do that? How do we do that? He says, here's how you do it. You get together as believers with all humility and with gentleness and with patience. Notice this phrase, bearing with one another. That sounds hard, doesn't it? It's like, it's so hard. You have to bear with other people, right? That's when you know you're doing it right. In love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. In other words, you don't have to achieve it. God already achieved it. Just don't mess it up. Just don't mess it up. There is one body. That's right, that's one church. And there's one spirit. 
just as you were called the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Walk in a manner worthy of your calling. How do you do that? You live in humility. You live in gentleness. You're, you're patient. You, you bear with one another. You don't have to do any of those things if you just stay home. But you're going to have to do those things if you come in here. He says, eager to maintain the unity, or some translations say, make every effort, work at it. Here's the point again. God has already made us one body in Christ. Stop messing it up. In Philippians, again, it says this. A letter written to a church, a group of people, a church. He says, complete my joy by being of the same mind, or we could say, of one mind. Having one love, being in full accord and of one mind, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. When you get together, it's not just you and what you like and what you want and how long you want to talk, it's about other people. Let each of you look not only to your own interests, but also the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves. Think like Christ Jesus. We've told you this before, depending on how you count, in the New Testament, there are 57 to 59 one another statements. Right? We, in fact, we, we, we reference them a lot and we did a whole series on some of them a couple years ago. And these are, these are basically descriptions, short phrases, because you say, okay, so how do I live in this body? How do I do this? And, and New Testament's full of specific ways to do it. Right, things like, and I put these in your notes, and it's not exhaustive, but I put it in your notes because I know, I know you. You're going to want to go home and look all of them up with the cross-references, so good for you. But uh, let me just kind of walk you through this. So it says things like love one another. And what you'll find is when you read in the Bible what love is, you realize really quickly, oh, I can't do that from a distance. If I'm going to love you, I have to be in proximity of you. I have to be within shouting range of you, you know. I have to be able to interact with you. I can't do this from a distance. Love one another. Live in peace with one another. Be devoted. That's a great word. Be devoted to one another. What does it mean when you're devoted to someone? It means you, you arrange your life around them, right? So it's not just like, well, I, maybe I'll go to church today. Maybe I'll go to grow group today. I, I don't know that I feel like it. To be devoted goes, oh, that's not why I go to church and that's not why I go to grow group. I go because I'll be missed if I'm not there. I won't be able to bless someone if I'm not there. I won't be able to pray for them. Give preference to one another. Be humble with one another. Don't judge one another. Build up one another. Accept one another. Admonish one another. Greet one another. Can't do that from a distance. Greet one another. Care for one another. Serve one another. So you come in a room, you see somebody. They're lonely. They need someone to pray with. They need someone to encourage them. We do that with one another. We, we care for one another. We serve. Don't fight with one another. Be patient with one another. Show tolerance for one another. Speak truth. I like that. Speak truth to one another. Don't envy. Be kind. Forgive. Right? So that's a tough one, but you can't, you can't forgive someone unless you're around them enough to give them the opportunity to sin against you. Forgive one another. Speak spiritually. Right? I'm sure you speak a lot of words to each other. Do you speak spiritually to one another? How about to your spouse? How about to your kids? How about to the person sitting next to you today? Be subject to one another. Don't lie to one another. Bear with one another. Don't, don't speak against one another. Don't complain about one another. 
Confess your sins to one another. Oh, that, right, we love that one. Well, I can't wait to go to church and find somebody. Now, I wouldn't suggest, you know, confessing to everybody, but you need to be able to confess to someone. Pray for one another. Be hospitable to one another. Fellowship with one another. You can only do these things in proximity with one another. Interacting, being honest, being transparent. If you just go to church, you can't do these things. You have to belong to a church. You have to belong, I don't mean the organization, but the people. Entering the Holy Catholic Church is automatic on salvation. When you place your faith in Christ, you are in. But the communion of the saints requires intentionality on your part. It's not automatic. Let me ask you this. How many believers would you say you know really well? Like you know their history, you know their salvation story, you know their hopes, you know their fears, they've confessed sins to you. Let me ask you this. How many people know you that well? Because nobody can know you that well unless you let them know you that well. And that's your choice. You have, you have, you have control over that. I mean, I think about Christ. How many disciples did Christ have? Well, we know that he had a group of 72. And then we know that he had a group of 12, so a smaller group of guys. And then we know that he had a group even smaller than that, a group of three, just three guys that were with him at the transfiguration and, and in the garden. I always find that interesting because research suggests that, again, that's maybe a little something that we see in our own lives. A visual capitalist did a, a study a few years ago. In fact, what they did is they gathered together a bunch of research that's been done to ask the basic question, how many friends are the average person, talking in the U.S., how many friends does the average person have? And I want to skip down a little bit to part of this. It, says this, according to anthropologist Robin Dunbar, human brains have a limit on how many meaningful relationships they can keep track of. Now, I don't know about you, but when I read that, I was like, oh, so it's not just me. Because right? I, honestly, I can, only, I can only remember so many details and what's going on in so many lives. And for years, I will admit, I felt really guilty about not remembering everything about everybody. And then I read this and I'm, oh, thank goodness. So here's what it tells us if you break it down. It says that the average person can have five intimate bonds. Now, it doesn't really get into a lot of detail, but, you know, obviously this, hopefully, the, if you're married, this describes your relationship with your spouse. Hopefully, maybe it, you know, describes uh, a relationship with maybe some of your kids or, or with your parents. It just, but don't do this. I've had people say, oh, well, you know, I, there's five, six people in my household, so I'm all in. I'm good. I, that's not necessarily true. I know lots of people live together, and this would not describe their relationship. And then it says, the average person can have about 15 close friends. All right, so a little bit more distance. And, but this usually is defined as people you see on a regular basis and interact with. What do we call this? Oikos, that's right. Right, about 15 people with whom you have loving, influential relationships. And then about 50 friends, and they, they describe that as people you see every now and then, and you don't necessarily have an agenda when you're with them, and you don't necessarily confess your sins to them. And then like 150 casual friends. Now this 150, this is really interesting. Um, they, this is what they found on Facebook, if you're on Facebook. They found that the average Facebook user has 155 friends on the platform, only consider 43 to be genuine friends. In other words, there's only 43 people they've actually met. They've actually been with face-to-face, and then there's just a lot of connections. And they would only trust four of those people in a crisis. Four. 
Now, there's nothing wrong with having a bunch of acquaintances, 155 or 1,000 of them, but you absolutely must have more than that. We need relationships that are, I just describe as slow. Right? It just, it takes time, and you're not in a hurry. And when you get together with them, sometimes it just takes a long time, you know? And you go deep, and you talk about stuff that makes you uncomfortable. Again, that's kind of how you'll know you'll doing it, you're doing it well. When you're in the middle of a conversation and you break out in a sweat, it's not because it's 150 degrees outside, right? But it's just because you're uncomfortable. That's when you know you're kind of going there, when you're just uncomfortably honest and confessing, and when you're building up that other person and they're building up you, and you're stirring up love and good deeds. And this means you're going to have to make choices. To get to this place, right, to get to this place, you don't just stumble into it. You have, to be per, uh, you have to be intentional. You have to be aggressive, right? Uh, it's one of the reasons that we have grow groups. We, our hope is that by putting you in a group with, uh, you know, 10, 20 other people, we, we know, we're not under any illusions that you're all going to become best friends, but we are hopeful and prayerful that you'll become better friends with that group and that maybe there's a few relationships that will go even deeper. And I hear people tell me this all the time. I got in a girl group and I love my group and we spend time together and everything, but there's a couple of people I become really close to. And that's, that's great. Like, again, we can't make it happen, but we try to set the stage in a place where you can get together with other people and have intentional relationships, right? That's a girl group. It's got to be intentional. We set aside the time. We, we get together. We have some food together. We talk about life. We pray for one another. And we text Bible verses to each other in the middle of the week. We, we make room in our calendar. We speak spiritually to one another. We have to be intentional. I always say it this way. We have to be intentional in our week. So again, you, this, this is not the way it works. Like, well, I'll get to the end of the week, and if at the end of the week I have some time... I'll work some people in. You've got to put it in your calendar at the beginning of the week. It means you make, you make a, a space in your prayers. So here's something that I found. If you'd like to have some deeper, meaningful relationships with people, and maybe there's a few people you'd love to see it go there, here's a great thing to do. Start praying for them. Just every day, start praying for them. It's a weird thing that when you start praying a lot for someone, you suddenly find yourself like having meaningful conversations. It's almost like God's involved or something, you know? But pray for them. Open up your home to them. Make room in your heart for them. In Proverbs eleven fourteen, it says this, where there's no guidance that people falls, but in an abundance of counselors, there's safety. I was uh, uh, listening to um, Matt Chandler a couple weeks ago and he made, I'm just going to paraphrase, he made a statement that I thought was so profound because, you know, I think a lot of times people think, well, the church is imperfect, full of imperfect people and there's gossip and talking, all this kind of stuff. And he made the statement that was, I don't know, to me it was very profound. He said this, no one has lied to you like you have lied to you. No one has broken promises to you like you have broken promises to you. No one has betrayed you like you have betrayed you. That's why we need one another. Because we are stronger together. God gives every one of us different spiritual gifts. And when we, when we come together, we benefit from that. We benefit from gifts that we don't have God gives different amounts of wisdom to each one of us. So when we come together with other Christians, we get the benefit from wisdom that God has given that person and that person, but not to us. 
God gives different amounts of knowledge and abilities and skills. And when we come together with other believers, we are stronger and wiser and we are more like Christ than when we are alone. A sociologist, Robert Putnam, wrote a book called Bowling Alone. And I want to read you a paragraph from this. I think this is so great. He says, one of the most interesting findings in all my research shows that there is a direct correlation between social isolation and making obscene gestures towards others in traffic. So again, let me read that, all right? One of the most interesting findings shows that there is a correlation between social isolation and making obscene gestures towards others in traffic. The people who report the most community involvement and the deepest relationships are more likely to give other drivers the benefit of the doubt. They're the least likely to get angry. Those who are the least connected tend to flip people off the most. And when I read it, of course, I got a good laugh. And then I'm like, well, it kind of makes sense, doesn't it? And here's the question I, I, I wrestled with. I wonder if that happens in our church. Like, don't get, I, I, you guys are all, you know how to conduct yourselves in public. So I, I'm sure none of you walk out of church and like, I've never seen anybody like flip someone off. But I just wonder in our heads, if we ever, like, maybe it's someone who uh, likes different music than you. And you're like, well, I don't, you know. You would never flip them off physically, I don't think. But maybe in your head, you're like, you know, you're kind of a jerk. Maybe it's somebody who votes differently. Have you ever had a conversation with someone and suddenly found out they vote really different than you? Like, what do you do in your head? Are you like, yay? Are you like, yay? Are you like, there's some room for us in Christ? Or do you do something else? Maybe it's people who mask or don't mask. And you have a really strong conviction. I'll tell you what, I, maybe, it's, maybe it's people who vaccinate or don't vaccinate. I've seen some very strong language from people even in our church on Facebook about people who don't agree with them. You know, I was, okay, my phone's actually ringing. Sorry about that. Uh, it's my daughter. Uh, there are people in our church who take a stronger stand on Facebook about vaccinations than they do on Jesus Christ. And it breaks my heart. We are the family of God. God has made us one. We should never be people who stand in the way of that. The creed places an emphasis on we, not me. God has called you. If you are a believer, he has called you to himself. And in doing that, he has called you into his church, both to be a blessing and to receive a blessing. When you become a believer, you are automatically in the Holy Catholic Church. But when it comes to the communion of saints, it involves an intentional decision and a practice on your part. And I want to encourage you today. When I, be, when I became a Christian, I, 
I was a freshman in high school. I had never been to church in my life. I had never been to a Bible study or any kind of Christian activity. And and there was a a Christian group on campus that met at lunch on Thursdays. And they would get together. They'd pull tables together. And they would sing together. It was weird. And they would like study the Bible and pray together. They'd bow their heads and pray. And as soon as I became a Christian, they found out. They were like, you need to come to, you need to come to Bible study on Thursdays. And I'm like, I'm not getting, that's weird. I'm not coming to that. And they just kept bugging me and bugging me. And finally, one day I did. And I remember like, this is awesome. This is great. I could be a freak. It's okay. And then, and then, but then that wasn't enough. Then they're like, you should come to church. And I'm like, oh man, there's no way I'm going to church. I'd never been in a church. I don't know what happens inside those doors. I have no, I mean, I don't know what's going on. They could have tambourines. They could all bring their pet cats. I have no idea what's going on inside a church. There's no way I'm going, but they would keep bugging me and bugging me and bugging me. And finally I started going to church and it was like, you need to come to youth group and you need to come to Bible study. And they just kept bugging me. I remember one time, they're trying to get me to come to a youth group Bible study in a house. And I'm just like, that seems so weird. But finally, I just gave in. They just wore me down. And I go, I go to the Bible study. It basically confirmed all of my fears. Because when I got there, everybody in that room was a, was a geek. And they dressed weird. And they didn't smell right. And I walked in. And they had this basket. And as I walked in, they're like, hey, uh, take a little piece of paper out of the basket. So I took a piece of paper out. And they said, you know, the teacher at some point, he's going to get to the point, And he's going to call on you to read the verse. And I remember sitting down and I was just like instantly sweating, breaking out of sweat. I'd just gotten the Bible. I'd just started reading. I was like in the second chapter of Genesis, you know, and I'm like, oh man. And I open it up and it's 1 John. I don't remember the exact verse, but it was 1 John. Like maybe 1 John 1, 9. It was 1 John and I remember like going, John, I don't, John, where's John? And so I'm trying to look very, like when people aren't looking at me, I'm flipping Genesis, Exodus. I had no idea. I'm just going and going and going. And finally I get to the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Oh, there's John. It's the first John. That must be it, right? And so it came turn to read the Bible verse and I read mine and I was like, it's kind of weird. It doesn't have anything to do with the topic, but I read it because that's what they said. And then people kind of snickered and they're like, well, that's not first John. That's the gospel John, blah, blah, blah. And it just confirmed all of my fears about the church. They are weird and they are judgmental and they know more than me and I didn't fit in. But I'm so glad. Oh my goodness, I'm so glad that they didn't give up on me and just kept inviting me and just kept inviting me because all they were really saying was, you belong to the church. You're in. Yeah, we're weird and all that stuff, but too bad. You're in. Now you need to start living it out. You've got to. You have to because this is in essence part of who you are. My prayer for us is that we will be that kind of church, that we'll be those kind of people who live that out and that we are the kind of people who encourage that, that we're always bringing others in. Man, some of you are so good at that. Some of you are so good at bringing people in. I just was thinking even uh, this week about some of you. you know, I just, not to make anyone embarrassed, I think of Mike Collins. Mike, Mike is so good at finding people and pulling them in. I just encourage you guys to be like that. What a blessing to other people. Well, we're going to close uh, by taking communion together. And so I want to encourage you, if you've got your cup, if you don't, there's a table right back there and you can grab that. I thought it'd be good to close with communion because communion reminds us that we are one body. We are one family. We are saved through one Savior. And communion, is a, it's a sharing, Right? It's a sharing of a meal together that, and, it's, and it's a sharing of a common salvation and a common Lord, Savior, and sacrifice. Uh, I know these can be a little tricky, right? You peel off the 
the top layer that some of you are working on right, to get to the wafer. While you're getting that, I want to read for you. In 1 Corinthians, Paul is reminding the church, like, why do we do this? What's, what's this all about? He says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread, he, he passed it around, and took a piece, and, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. He was, he was telling them, I'm giving my, my body, my life for you. And in the future, you're going to get together with other believers and you're going to, you're going to remember this together. And what are you going to remember? That you have one common Savior who made one common sacrifice. It's what unites us. We are all the same at the foot of the cross. We are all saved through the same body, through the same sacrifice, through the same cross, through the same Savior. He said, as often as you take this bread, he says, do it in remembrance of me. All right, next layer. There you go. Paul goes on and explains to the church in the same way also he took the cup. After supper, saying, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you'll proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And you get into Acts chapter 2 and chapter 4 and you see the church, they were continually getting together and they were continually doing this thing together. Remembering the body and remembering the blood of Christ. The blood of Christ that was shed for us. He says, as often as you drink this, do it in remembrance of me. Father God, I thank you for our time together in the Word this morning. I thank you for the reminder that when we are in Christ, we are one. We are part of the, of the holy, universal Catholic Church. And we thank you, Father, that is a gift that you have given to us. But we're also reminded that you call us, you, you call us to engage in the local communion of the saints. And so I pray for us, Father, as we go from here, that, that you might bring to mind those relationships this week that, we can, that we've been investing in, that we can build upon, that we can take deeper this week. We, we think maybe there's a, a few people around us that we need to go a little deeper in and spend a little more time with. Father, my prayer, though, is that as, as you bring these people to mind, that, that we will set our minds on these things, that as Scripture says, we will, we will make every effort to do these things, to seek the unity of, of the body and to love one another. Father God, we can't do that on our own. We can only do that through the power of the Spirit. And so we pray as your Spirit calls us uh, to deepen relationships with one another and to be the body of Christ, that we will respond in faith. And that as we do that, we will find you there and you will strengthen and grow us into the image of Christ not just as individuals, but as a body. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, amen. Well, folks, thank you for joining us today. God bless you. And uh, if it takes you a little longer to get out of the room, because you know you just got a fellowship, go for it. God bless you. Have a great day.